and uh, we're in John chapter 4, verse 1, but we'll start with prayer. Heavenly Father, we know that we're in the season now leading up to the celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection from the dead. Uh, many churches call this the Lenten season, where they just take time, maybe fast a little bit, and uh, get closer to you. And, and maybe read over some of these stories about Jesus, what led up to his crucifixion, why he died, why he rose from the dead. So, Father, we intend to do that too. So open our eyes today as we read about Jesus and, and help us to learn about him a little bit more and about ourselves then too. So Holy Spirit, we know you're the one responsible for understanding. So help us to take it in, not only in our minds, but in our hearts, God's word today. So thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. Begin reading in verse one. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town uh, in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or noon, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Well, we'll stop right there. And I'd like to go back to the beginning and 
bring out to you three different contrasts about Jesus that I picked up in this passage here. And let me explain them to you and see what you think. Now, this was a totally different conversation than the one Jesus had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leading religious leader of his day, a Pharisee, a renowned man. And Jesus, in his conversation, if you remember, told him, basically, you know, your status in society, your religious standing in the community, notwithstanding, you need to be born again. You're spiritually dead. And he instructed Nicodemus what it meant to be born again and, and how this change had to come, come about in his life if he wanted to be in the kingdom of God. Now, here's a conversation that's totally different. Jesus isn't speaking with a, a renowned leader in the community, a great spiritual leader in the Jewish faith. He's talking to a woman who is not even a part of the Jewish community. So Nicodemus was a man. She was a woman. Nicodemus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. Nicodemus was a well-known ruler. She was a common citizen. It doesn't even give her name. Notice that? It doesn't say, well, her name was Shirley. It doesn't even mention that because she's lower class, a commoner, so to speak. He was an upright Pharisee. She was a notorious sinner, not just an ordinary citizen, but the worst of the worst in the eyes of that society. She was a sinner. Yet, both Nicodemus and this unnamed woman were both equal in the sight of God. Jesus spent time with both of them. Both had the same need of a new beginning in their life, a new birth. But Jesus approaches it in different ways. So in this story, we see clearly, this is the first point that I want to bring out. We're talking about contrasts in Jesus' life. The first contrast is, this story shows us clearly the dual nature of Jesus. He's fully human, and at the same time, he's fully divine. He's the only one like that, who had two natures. As it said here in verse 4, he came to a town, verse 5, in Samaria, uh, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Now notice, Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, it was about the sixth hour, and he asked the woman for a drink. Because he's not only tired from the journey, he's thirsty. It said a couple verses later, verse 8, he had sent his disciples into town to buy food. Was Jesus fully human? Well, I don't know about you, but I get tired, I get thirsty, I get hungry. <laughs> Jesus was fully human. So this shows his human nature. He got hot, tired, hungry, and thirsty. But yet at the same time, he was fully divine. And how do we know that? Because he offers this woman a kind of water that... You can't find on earth any place. He says in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water that he's going to be able to offer will, will uh, never thirst again. It's not water from the well. 
It's something else that he is offering people. Now, elsewhere in God's word, it refers to this water, living water, being the Holy Spirit. And that's what you received. We learned that last time when he talked to Nicodemus, when you're born again. When you repent, when you believe that Jesus Christ is truly the Son of God, that he is not only the Savior of the world, but he is your personal Savior. When you believe that reality and accept Jesus as your personal Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to you and begins to dwell in you. And that's the process of being born again or born from above. And Jesus says that's what you need to experience to go to heaven, to be in the kingdom. So he's saying basically the same thing to this woman, wording it a little differently, because she is not a religious leader. She does not really understand the Old Testament like Nicodemus did. So Jesus is fully human because he's hot, he's tired, he's hungry, he needs a drink of water, but yet no human being can offer anybody living water welling up inside of them, the Holy Spirit, in other words. So there's a, a name for this that, that you should know. There's something that is called hypostatic union. That's the term that the early church fathers came up with to describe how Jesus had two natures. How could he be fully God and fully man at the same time? Well, Jesus was unique in that. He's the only individual who had that status and still does. He is still fully human and fully divine to this day. You know, when he eventually ascended back up into heaven, he didn't leave his human body behind and just kind of go up spiritually. He took his human body with him because he wants us to understand that to this day, he still has this nature. It's called hypo, H-Y-P-O, static, hypostatic nature. It's a Greek word. It, it means subsistence. Uh, you know, people wondered after Jesus departed, well, what was he all about? Who, who was he exactly? What was he made of, you know? And, you know, by studying scripture, they came to the conclusion that he had two natures. He was fully human through his mother, Mary, but he was fully God through his father, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. So the word or the term to describe that is a hypostatic union, a hypostatic union of both physical and spiritual, of mortal and divine. So we see the first contrast about Jesus Christ in his experience here with, with the woman. It's spelled out that he has these two natures. He is both perfectly divine, perfectly human, having two complete and distinct natures at once. He had to be human in order to die. And he had to be God in order to be the savior of the whole human race. So when he died on the cross, it wasn't just an ordinary man dying. You know, if I died on the cross, my death could never pay the penalty for the sins of the human race. Only the death of the Son of God could accomplish that. Amen. So keep that in mind. So that's the first point. And it's interesting here because uh, this is a location, this well where they meet, uh, actually goes back to Old Testament times. 
Uh, Jacob had bought this piece of land where he dug the well and set up an altar to God. If you want to read about that, it's Genesis 33, verses 18 through 20. I won't turn there, but Genesis 33, verses 18 through 20 gives you the historical background of this special site where Jesus met this woman. Now, the second contrast about Jesus, not only was he fully God and fully human, the second contrast about Jesus is that there were things that Jesus felt very strongly about. And in this case, it was the word of God. It was the Old Testament for that matter. He didn't waver when it came to teaching about the scripture or helping people to understand the scripture. But on the other hand, there were certain areas where he was not all that concerned. And, you know, he didn't give it that much credence or importance. He was fiercely loyal to scripture, but when it came to, I guess what we could call the political correctness of his day, uh, not so much. He wasn't going to let any man-made rules keep him from reaching people with the gospel. Now, this woman, first of all, I told you she had three strikes against her. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan, and she was a sinner. Now, in the eyes of the Pharisees, no Jewish teacher worth his salt is going to have anything to do with this person. But Jesus did. So Jesus put aside any regulations of society, so to speak. We call it political corrective things in our society today. He put those aside because he was not going to be limited in who he could reach with the gospel. So he felt very comfortable in talking to this woman. Now the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, what is called the law. So they believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and that's it. Now Jesus, as a Jew, understood that the Old Testament was not just the law, but it's the law, the prophets, and the writings. All of those were inspired, and all of those should be read and studied. Instead of five books of the Old Testament, there's a total of 39 books of the Old Testament. So this woman was limited very much in her understanding of what God taught in the Bible, in the Old Testament back in those days. So they only believed in the first five books of, of the, uh, the Old Testament. When we talk about Samaria, I don't have a diagram to show you, but you know that Israel was originally made up of 12 tribes. When they set, got set free from Egypt, from slavery, they came across... Moses brought them across to the promised land, and there were 12 different tribes based on the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel, in other words, and they settled in the promised land. And things went along just fine. They all had their own specific areas of property. But when King Solomon died, he was the last of the kings that ruled over the entire nation of Israel. There was a split, and Israel became split into a southern kingdom of Judah and a northern kingdom of Israel, which came to be called Samaria. So Samaria up in the north had their own holy place. It was called Mount Gerizim. 
And that's what the woman was talking about, that, well, we believe we should worship on this mountain, but you Jews who live down south in Judah, you believe that Jerusalem is the place to worship. In fact, at times, when you read your Bible closely, there were times when the northern kingdom fought against the southern kingdom. Israel was fighting against Judah, warring against them. So they became very separate. Notice in chapter 4 here, verse 22, Jesus informs her, listen, lady, <laughs> he doesn't use those terms. I probably would have used those terms. Listen, lady, you don't understand. You know, because you're a Samaritan, you only believe in the five, first five books of the Bible, the law, but you've got to understand all of God's revelation. And Jesus is, is trying to explain to her that the Messiah that you're waiting for is prophesied to be born of the Jews. And furthermore, on him. I am he. Okay, he says in verse 22, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus stands very firmly on the scriptures. He stands very firmly for God. Now, there were a lot of restrictions in his society at the time. And like I said, one of them was men don't talk to women in public. It wasn't politically correct for a man to talk to a woman in public. Secondly, she was, an, she was a Samaritan. And by this time, it wasn't politically correct for Jews to associate with Samaritans. And thirdly, she was a sinner. She had five husbands previously and was now living with a man who she was not married to. And it wasn't politically correct for rabbis to mix with sinners. But Jesus was willing to put those things, man-made rules and regulations aside, to put his full focus on God's word. And he took his stand for God. Jesus treated everyone with respect, although he suffered a lot of persecution for doing that, because it wasn't politically correct in his day to do that. But to Jesus, reaching a person with the gospel was more important than any man-made restrictions. Amen. And he just put those aside. Amen. Now, we have to understand, in our day today, we have to be careful we have to be like Jesus and make sure that we take our stand on God's word. And we stand for God. Because there are a lot of other things that can get in the way. That can hamper the preaching of the gospel. That can hamper people being called to salvation. We know we're out there living the gospel. Okay, We don't stand on street corners and preach at people and condemn them for their sins. We have not been called to do that, so don't ever do that. We should be living examples of Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus dwells in us because why? We're born again. We're born from above. The Holy Spirit has come to us, is living in us. Do, are we now perfect? By no means. But we're making pro progress in the right direction. God is helping us. And if we all look at our lives honestly, we can see that we have made a lot of progress over the years. And I don't think we're going to reach any kind of perfection until Jesus returns and our change takes place at that time. That's when we will reach perfection. But in the meantime, we're to be out there in the... Uh, 
trying to use the football term, in the trenches. <laughs> We're out there in the trenches every day trying to live the best way we can by the grace of God, okay? We're trying to be examples of what a Christian should be, and the glory doesn't go to us, it goes to God. It's Jesus dwelling in us. We talk about our light shining out here in a darkened society. It's not our light, it's the light of Jesus Christ who dwells in us. And it's a challenge, isn't it? Day in and day out, we have good days, we have bad days. But we need to make sure that our stand and our focus isn't on things that it shouldn't be. Jesus made that clear to us. We stand on God's word and God's word alone. Whose side are we on? We're on God's side. And I think it's very important because there's a lot of things going on in our society today that are very divisive. It divides people from people. And I keep using the example, and there are many examples, but politics. <laughs> We're in another election year again, aren't we? So come May, they're not electing for president, but they're electing for a whole lot of other things. And I think some Christians make the mistake of making their stand with a, per a particular political party, whichever it may be. And that becomes your stand. And then in our society today, you are judged by a lot of people. You're either on their side or you're on the opposite side. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to vote. It's not wrong to vote. But I'm saying that if we make our stand with a, polit a particular political group, whichever it may be, we're casting roadblocks in the way of reaching other people. Because it has gotten so divisive today that as soon as somebody from one party, party A, finds that you're a part of party B, they totally reject you. Remember stories this past uh, Thanksgiving of how families have become so divided over politics that if you're not of the same political party that the people who are hosting the family Thanksgiving dinner, you're not going to get invited. You're not going to be able to be with your family because of political differences. Everybody's afraid that a big argument is going to break out in the middle of Thanksgiving dinner from some who are of this party versus some who are of that party, and a big, you know, disagreement's going to happen. People are going to get offended, and who knows? It probably happens that way. But we need to be careful that our stand <laughs> is with Jesus, is with God's word, now, we may have our own particular personal feelings about things like that. Fine. You know what? Keep them to yourself. Don't make that the thing that you stand on. Make God the one that you stand on and God's word. I've gotten to the point where, you know, if somebody ever asks me, you know, do you, are you part of a particular political party? First of all, I might say, that's none of your business, by the way. <laughs> but secondly, I say, you know what? I don't stand with any political party. If I want to vote, I'm going to try to vote for a person who maybe has the most godly principles, and it can be from any political party. It doesn't matter to me. That's my basis, okay? That's where I take my stand. I take my stand with God. And I'm not going to vote a particular way just because it's part of a particular party. That's not where I stand. Now, there are other things that you can look at, too. There are so many divisive things in, in our society. Uh, guns. I, I've always been a sportsman, and I enjoy shooting guns. 
I don't go hunt animals. I like to shoot these orange things that fly through the air. They send, and you get your shotgun and you try to hit these things. So I'm not killing animals, I'm shooting clay targets. But you know, sometimes when people find out that you like guns, they think, oh, you're one of those. <laughs> you know, I enjoy doing that, but I don't take my stand on that. I don't go around, you know, telling people, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, big proponent of, you know, people having guns and being able to shoot guns and all this kind of stuff because I don't want to cast a stumbling block between me and possibly them hearing the gospel and responding to it and uh, being saved. So I ask you, I think Jesus, you know, did this. Where was he going to take his stand? It was on the word of God. And, you know, in Jesus' day, there were all sorts of political parties. You had the Pharisees. You had the Sadducees. You had the Essenes, and then you had a group called the Zealots. And the Zealots were the ones who were willing to, maybe like you see in uh, the war going on right now in Ukraine, they're willing at any time or at any opportunity to pick up weapons to defeat the oppressors. And Jesus had nothing to do with any of those groups. He never took a stand with any of those groups. And I'm sure he was pressured to do it, and they would have liked to have had him on their side, whatever the group may have been. But never in the Bible does it say that Jesus was a Pharisee, a Sadducee, an Essene, or a Zealot. He had a, one of his apostles was a Zealot, Simon the Zealot. So he came out of that background. But I think spending time with Jesus, I'm sure his outlook changed as time went by. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9. And again, don't get me wrong, I'm not anti-politics, I'm not anti-democracy or anything like that. We as Christians need to determine what is really important in our lives and where do we take our stand. I think the Apostle Paul learned this in his ministry. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, though I am free and belong to no man, Hey, I called the shots for my life. I can decide whatever I want to decide. I make myself a slave to everyone. Why? To win as many as possible. This is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. To win the Jews. To those under the law, the Jews, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, the Gentiles, Romans, Greeks, whatever the case may be. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. That's the kind of outlook we need to have. No matter who you come in contact with, don't immediately think, well, this person's different from me because I stand for this and that, and I'm this political party and they're not. You could do that very easily and it happens every day in society. What we need to do is to be patient. We need to listen to the person that we're talking to. 
We need to understand their concerns, their worries, their hopes, their dreams, and where possible, God can kind of guide us in what we say uh, to help them to understand maybe a little bit more about Jesus Christ and the gospel. So what do you stand on? Make sure it's nothing that is, you know, lower than what our calling is. We stand on God's word and we stand for God. Anything else is secondary. We can all have our own personal, you know, opinions on things, but I would say you're better off keeping them to yourself because you don't want to divide yourself from other people. So, okay, we've seen contrast with Jesus so far. First of all, this passage shows us he was fully God and fully man. That's a contrast. The second contrast that we've seen is Jesus knew where to take his stand. He took a stand on God's word. He straightened out this woman saying, you know, you got your own ideas about the Messiah. I'm telling you, scripture says he's coming from the tribe of Judah. And furthermore, I am he. And I don't know if she really got it or, or believed it. I think she eventually did. She knew there was something different about this man because he knew all about her personal life. But he, she said, remember, I think you're a prophet. Jesus is more than a prophet. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the promised Messiah. Now here's the third contrast about Jesus. Jesus in his conversation with this woman, on the one hand, was kind of satisfying to her. He was going to provide something for her living waters that she didn't even know she needed. She couldn't even understand what it was. Because, you know, Jesus asked her for a drink of water and she's thinking about a well and the water in the bucket but he's talking about something else. He's talking about being born again and receiving the Holy Spirit. That's what living waters are all about. But remember Nicodemus, when Jesus said, well, you have to be born again. And he said, what do you mean? I'm gonna go back inside my mother and come out a second time. He only looked at it from a physical point of view. This woman's doing the same thing. He's talking about living waters that you drink of and you're never gonna be thirsty again, ever. And she's thinking, how does that work? You know, how am I going to get that out of the well? You don't even have a bucket. Jesus was satisfying, and at the same time, to this woman, he was disturbing. That's a contrast. Jesus was satisfying, and he was disturbing. He could satisfy her with living water, spiritual water, the Holy Spirit that she would receive when she's born again. And if you want a scripture for that, Living waters, the Holy Spirit. John 7, verse 37. I won't turn there, but John 7, verse 37 through 39 says, Living water refers to the Holy Spirit, which we receive when we're born again. So in other words, well water is for physical thirst. Life-giving water is for spiritual thirst. And once we're born again, we have a, a perpetual spring within us, the Holy Spirit giving water from which we can drink and share with others. That spiritual experience that we get from the Holy Spirit. And you know what? Jesus is teaching that one drink of this refreshing spiritual water is worth more than anything that we could ever achieve in this world. And that's why this living water is so important. But here in, in uh, verse 15, we're in John 4, in verse 15, what do I mean when Jesus disturbs her? 
He, he refreshes her. He satisfies her with this message about living water that she can drink of and never be thirsty again. But he also disturbs her. He disturbs her conscience. How, conscience. How does he do that? Verse 16, he says to her, why don't you go call your husband and come back? Now she knows she's living with a guy. She's not married to him. And Jesus, Jesus knows that. So what he's going to do is he's going to kind of probe. And he does that with us too. He kind of probes and he, he, he says, go call your husband. And that's going to require for her to say, well, I have no husband. And he says, you know what, you're right. When you say you have no husband, you've had five husbands. You probably divorced them for the wrong reasons or illicit reasons. And now you're living with a man who's not your husband. So Jesus satisfies her by giving her this hope for the future with living water. But at the same time, he kind of probes and he points out something that he knows is wrong in her life and that she knows is wrong in her life. He disturbs her conscience by pointing out her sinful life. And you know, she came to the well at noon. And people don't normally come to the well at noon because that's the hottest part of the day. So that shows you that she came to the well at noon to avoid all of the people from her community which would have been there which would have been pointing at her when they saw her. Oh yeah, there's, there's the woman. There's the woman who's living with a man. We all know about it. She, she's a sinner. She's a terrible sinner. And she's tired of that. She doesn't want to come to the well when everybody's there and acknowledges her sinfulness. She's tired of that. So she comes to the well in the hottest part of the day when nobody's there. And she just happens to run into Jesus at this time. She wanted to avoid the crowd, those who would stare and point fingers at her because they knew her reputation. But Jesus, as he is offering her salvation, living waters, the Holy Spirit, at the same time, Jesus insists that she deal with her sin. So he brings up the subject. You know, her sin is like the elephant in the room. <laughs> You know that saying where there's something that you're trying to avoid, but it's so big in your life, you kind of know it's there, and there's no avoiding it. When Jesus calls us to be born again, and we're born again, okay, we repent of our sins, we acknowledge Jesus as our Savior, not just the Savior of the world, but our own personal Savior. We believe now that he is the Son of God, and we have salvation through him, and that his salvation is based on grace, not by our works. Fine. Wonderful. That's kind of the situation that we're all in right now. But Jesus still probes us. What is going on in your life right now that you, as a born-again son or daughter of God, shouldn't be involved in? Do you ever have something like that going on in your life? Yeah, we all kind of do, don't we? And Jesus disturbs her, if you want to say it that way. He brings up the subject. And you know what? I think Jesus does the same thing with us. Even though we're Christians, We've been born again. We have the Holy Spirit. There are times where Jesus kind of pokes us and says, okay, 
my born-again son or daughter, you have yet to deal with this issue in your life. You know, I'm here to provide all the help you need, the strength you need, you know, the conviction you need, but you need to participate in this now. You need to straighten out that issue that uh, has been the elephant in the room all these years in your Christian life. And that's what he's doing with this woman. Today in our society, and even in the church, unfortunately, compassion is the name of the game. We overlook sin and sometimes condone it. Discipline is avoided. Jesus didn't do that. He caused her to face the reality of her sin so she could change her way of thinking, repent, and be set free by his forgiveness. You know, the scripture we read earlier during the offering, Jesus came to set the prisoners free. And he does that. And I'm not talking about physically opening jail cells, although he did that in the book of Acts too, miraculously. He has set us free from our sins, the sins that we've struggled with all of our lives. We know now that by his blood, they're forgiven. They're forgiven. But sometimes we don't want to fully come out of the slavery to the sins. We still want to hang around the sins or maybe participate in the sins. Jesus has set us free by his grace and mercy. Indeed, he has. They're forgiven. But now he wants us to change the lifestyle, to come out of that. If you remember the Israelites, God brought them miraculously out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. But they got out into the wilderness and they started to complain. And what did they want to do? They wanted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. They said, at least we had food there. At least we had water when we wanted it. And sometimes we as Christians have the same mindset. That even though God has brought us out, just as he brought the Israelites out of slavery, he's brought us out of slavery. He's paid the penalty for our sins. They're forgiven. But sometimes we don't want to change the lifestyle. We like the forgiveness. We love the grace. But Jesus probes us and says, okay, born again, son and daughter, deal with the elephant in the room now. I'm here to offer whatever help I can, and I will help you. But you need to make that determination that you now want to leave that part of your life behind. Don't forget, we're saved by grace. But once we're saved, we need to live in the reality of who we are. Beloved sons and daughters of God, forgiven by the grace of God through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Remember what Jesus said, one last scripture here in Matthew 5, 29. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? and the advice that he gave the people he was talking to? It applies to us. Matthew 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, he doesn't mean that literally. That was a figure of speech saying, whatever it is in your life, that is causing you to sin, get it out. Just make the determination, hey, I'm a born again son or daughter of God, and my life is supposed to change accordingly. And why do I keep hanging on to some of these old things? He says in verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. 
So Jesus was saying to the woman, you know, I'm offering you this living water, the Holy Spirit, salvation through me because I'm the Messiah. But you still need to go back now and deal with some of these issues in your life. Because how is it going to be for you to be a born-again daughter of God who's living with a guy who's already divorced five other guys, having the bad reputation in the community? I've called you to change, Jesus says. And he says the same thing to us. Once saved, we live in the reality, we must live in the reality of who we are as dearly beloved, born-again sons and daughters of the Father. We seek to remove anything that doesn't look like a follower of Jesus in our lives. And sometimes that takes some time on our part because we've got to determine that this is what's best for us and this is what God wants for us. Grace is free from our perspective, but it is very costly from Jesus' perspective. Never forget that. Jesus continually probes our conscience so that he can quench our thirst. Jesus always disturbs the comfortable before he comforts the disturbed. (laughs) And that's what he was doing with this woman. And that's what Jesus does with us. As we come to the season now where we're going to remember Jesus' death on the cross, the benefit from that suffering is free for us. Grace is free. But it wasn't free for Jesus, was it? He had an awful cost to pay dying on that cross. And we must never lose sight of that and take God's grace for granted. So what were the contrasts we saw today? Jesus is fully divine and fully human. That's a contrast. He was strongly, he took a stand for God's word and he downplayed things that were considered politically correct in his day. He wouldn't let any rule or regulation of man come between him and somebody that he can reach with the gospel and somebody that he can offer salvation to. And finally, Jesus comforts and yet disturbs us at the same time. He comforts us with salvation, free grace, sins forgiven, but he is constantly there throughout the rest of our life to kind of poke us and to say, hey, you haven't dealt with this issue of your life yet. You need to deal with it because a born-again son or daughter of God shouldn't be living like that. So Jesus said to this woman, if you only knew who it is that is talking to you, She didn't know that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. But we know better, don't we? We know who it is that is talking to us. So let's heed Jesus' uh, encouragement for us, his uh, help for us, his strength for us, because it is in Jesus that we find life.